Well, why don't we go ahead and find our seats, and we'll get started here today. Just want to say welcome to you. If you're new, uh, just want to say welcome. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for praying for our trip. I want to make sure I don't forget to recognize uh, Jacqueline Jordan, who was in the first service. A lot of you know Jacqueline. She's going to be going as part of conference support for teaching uh, probably 40 to 50 Ecuadorian men and women, um, some church planners, some pastors, and some lay people as well. Uh, It's just a big conference. Uh, You guys have seen the pictures in the past. It's just that same thing. And I'll hopefully post some pictures on Slack. Anyway, Jacqueline Jordan is going, and Jamie right here. Wave your hand, Jamie. Um, She's going um, just kind of as conference support uh, to make sure things run smoothly there. And so it's so thankful for them, and so be sure to thank them as well. If you're new here, uh, we are in a series in the book of Exodus. And we're doing a mini-series on the Ten Commandments. And so we've done the first five, and today we're diving into number Six, And so you'll see number six here on the screen. It is, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. Now, let's stop and think about this for a second. Now, why, why is that in the top ten? Like, what's the big deal with murder, right? Stupid question. Christian or non-Christian, uh, most people believe that murder is wrong, Right? We might not believe that taking the Lord's name in vain is wrong. We might not believe in, you know, rest and the Sabbath and all that that we've talked about. You may not believe in having other gods and maybe there's a bunch of gods we can have and all that. We can disagree about all that. Christians shouldn't disagree about that. But believers and unbelievers, when we get together, we can disagree about those things. But most people don't disagree about number six here, right? If you say that murder is not wrong, you're going to freak out a lot of people, right? But it seems so simple, like, what, like it could just be like, all right, there's the Bible, all right, let's go home. I mean, it seems that simple, right? But I want us to stop and think about this. Let, let's try to think God's thoughts after him. Let's try to think theologically about what's going on here. Let, let's, I mean, I don't know if I want to say this, but like, we, we can't, it's impossible to climb into the mind of the Lord, but he has revealed some things to us, okay? And so let's, let's take what he's revealed to us and see if we can think a little deeper than just, all right, I'm not going to mur- murder anybody. All right, let's go home. Why is murder such a big deal? Not necessarily in our eyes. We, we, we think we get it, but why is it a big deal in God's eyes? And there's a lot we could say based on what God has revealed. We can't climb into the mind of the Lord. Who has known the mind of the Lord? But God has chosen to be so faithful to us, to give us a gift where he speaks and we hear. And some of what he has spoken that we hear in his Bible can help us understand with profundity why murder is a big deal. And where I want to start, real simply, is the first page of your Bible. Genesis chapter 1. If you want to open up there, starting in verse 26, Genesis 1, 26, it'll also be on the screen here. This is where I want us to plant our flag for understanding why God commands his people, Old Testament, New Testament, in Madison 2018. Murder's a big deal. Murder's a really big deal. This is God's reasoning. Then God said, let us make man in our image. 
after our likeness. Those, those two words are, are helpful. Image, likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. This is God's word. Now, There's a lot we could say about these verses and that we have said a few years ago, we did a series in Genesis. You can go back and listen to that sermon on this text that unpacks this a lot more. But I'm not going to preach that sermon again right now, but I want you to simply see this. The point is, if we can see the, 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 the scripture on the screen again, the point is, look at the repetition. You see, just through repetition, human beings are made in the image of God. Our physical Bodies are made in the image of God. Physical bodies, mind, and soul, all of who we are as human beings are meant to image God. Think about it like this. Have you ever seen a little kid and you hear someone say about that little kid, oh man, he's a spitting image of his dad. You ever heard that? What does that mean? Why do we say that? Well, it just means that the little kid looks a lot like his dad. Spit an image. When you see him, it, when you see the little kid, it reminds you of the father. Just by the physical presence alone, just by the physical appearance alone, reminds you of the dad. The, little, the son, the little son, is a, is a little representation of the dad. And there's, there's mystery here for sure, but this is just what the Bible says. That's kind of what it's like to be made in the image of God. Our physical appearance should remind all of creation of God. We're stamped, in a sense, with divine similarity. There's a lot of differences for sure, but there's some similarities. God created us so so that when we see human beings walking around, like when I see Ben and I go, there's Ben. That's my, that's my guy. It's just like, oh, that's Ben. Yeah, he's just one of, my, one of my friends. Normal. No, I shouldn't think that. I should think, no, Ben is an image bearer. Ben has been stamped with, with, with the divine in some sense. And, and that's holy ground right there. We don't think lightly of that. Now, it's so normal because there's so many human beings running around this planet. It's just, it's so normal we miss it. But I don't think one, God wants us to live in the normal. He wants us to live with, with seeing with eyes like he sees. And when he sees Ben, he sees image of God. That's my image bearer. And when he sees all of us, right? It's not just another human being, big deal. No, look at that human being. They remind me of God. They're a spitting image of God himself. So now you can maybe begin to feel why God hates murder so much, why he loves the preservation of life, such that he would command his people never to murder. Thinking biblically now, what, what is murder? It's the destroying of the physical represent, representation of God in the world. Let's think about representation. Just like when you see someone burn the United States flag. 
Why is that so disrespectful for American, for most of American citizens? Why is it so disrespectful? Is it, is it because of the preciousness of the cloth and the thread that make up the flag that, that's somehow magical and uniquely precious, this cloth and this thread and this thing? No, who cares about cloth and thread, right? If that's all it is, no, we, we feel deeply about flag burning because of what it represents, right? It represents our country and all the men and women who have died for our freedom as a nation. It's the highest form. If you want to communicate that you disrespect the country, burn the flag. It's the highest form of that, right? Everybody knows that. But it also represents the hearts of those that are doing it. They hate this country, and that's clear. Now, I think we should be patriotic in a limited sense, maybe in a secondary, tertiary sense. I'm way more excited about the glory of God than I am the United States of America. God is primary if we love him. So using this analogy, though, why is murder such a big deal? Because it's like flag burning, except we're burning humans. Humans represent God. They image God. They remind the whole creation about God. So if you murder, it's one of the highest forms of disrespecting God. You're saying through your actions to, that God himself is worth nothing to you whatsoever if you're willing to treat his image representative like that, that he has said, these representatives are very, very good. I love the the movie Gladiator. A lot of you have seen it. There's a scene that reminds me of this right at the beginning. It's the opening scene of the movie. And the Roman army is gathering to seek to conquer some Germanic tribes. And they're lined up over here, and the Germanic tribes are lined up over here. And so the Romans want to give these Germanic tribes an opportunity to surrender. So what they do is they select one of their own, one of their own Romans, as a representative of the whole army, of the general Maximus and his army. And they send him on horseback over to these Germanic tribes people. Well, the Germanic tribe sends the representative back to the Roman army Still on horseback, but with one slight difference, his head has been removed from his shoulders. So what message does that send to General Maximus and his army? See, the treatment of the representative communicates a strong message to the general and the whole rest of the army. And, and in the movie, General Maximus turns to his right-hand man upon seeing the representative, and he says, they say no. If you're willing to disrespect the representative like this, what does that say about your feelings of the whole? And the point is this. God is the general. God is the whole. So in this sense, murder is maybe more about God than it's even about us. 
You don't kill what God created and has declared very, very good. I mean, God made all this stuff. Just read Genesis chapter 1. He said the universe and all these plants and these animals and the stars and the sky and the oceans and all of it. Man, it's good. But then he gets to human beings uniquely and says they're very good. See, God created us to value what he values, to love what he loves. And the height of sin is to look at what God has made, the pinnacle of what God has, has made, human beings, and disagree with his assessment of it and not treat it as very good, but treat it as very bad, worthless enough to kill it. I think it should be very clear this morning, just from Genesis 1. I mean, there's a lot more we could say, but just from Genesis 1 and, and human beings being image bearers, you should be able to feel and see why God hates murder, why he puts that at number six in the top ten. But again, for most of us, let's just be honest. Like, we might have a sense of conviction about using the Lord's name in vain, just being flippant with how we talk about God and his, and his reality in the world. Some of us know that like, there's conviction about the Sabbath and I'm not resting and I believe that I'm sovereign over my own life and I'm trying to control everything so I never rest. And that's, that's a problem between myself and the Lord. And I need to repent of that and have a right view of him and his sovereignty in my life. And I don't provide for myself. He's the provider. But when we come to number six, most of us are like, what the? There's, no, there's no conviction check. I'm good, right? What do I got to be convicted about? I've never murdered anybody. Now, that might be unique in this room. Let me just pause and let's recognize this. Maybe there are some actual murders in the room. If you went to church in Rwanda and were a Christian, there'd probably be some murderers in the room. We can think of a lot of examples throughout Christian history where, man, it's not so quick to check the box and go home and feel good. There's gospel for, for real physical murderers. We're going to get to that in a second. But if you're in that group of people this morning that's like, I'm good, I'm good. Like, I'll work on the Sabbath, I'll work on the Lord's name in vain. I don't really have to work on this one. I think Jesus wants to take us a little deeper. He wants us to go deeper in on our sin so that the gospel can be like an explosion of joy in your identity. We've got to get down in there. And Jesus wants to do that with his disciples. He said, guys, you're on the surface. You're Jewish guys, you know your Old Testament. These Pharisees, Sadducees, they're on the surface. It's not in the heart. It's not in the heart. He said, guys, I know you feel like you can check number six and you're good, but, but hold on, guys. So he gathers his, his guys, 12, imagine them, 12 guys right here. And he's on a mountain. And maybe he's seated, maybe he's standing and he, and, he, and he says, he quotes the Bible to them, the Bible as they know it, the Old Testament. And here's what he says to them. He said, guys, we've got to get down to the heart level. You've heard that it was said. So basically he's saying, you know the Old Testament. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. So just quoting our verse for today. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And as God himself, notice he does not say, I'm speaking on, the, on behalf of God. He just says, but I say to you, who can do that? Only God can. 
Jesus, as God, says to his first family here, these disciples, but I say to you, we've got to get down to the heart level, guys, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Wow, that's, that's heavy. That lands on me as heavy. Does that land on you as heavy? How do we make sense of this? Jesus is talking about hell. That's, that's a fearful thing. Jesus is talking about murder and anger. So I think where we need to start Where I'd like to start, what are we to make of anger from this passage? See, see, look at what Jesus does. Can we we see it on the screen again? Um, But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother. So Jesus is here linking physical murder with anger. Do you see that? He said, you shall not murder. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother... The judgment's going to be the same. So this murder and anger is, this, is somehow, according to Jesus, there's a similar judgment for both. So what does the Bible say about anger? What does the Bible say about anger? Well, let's, let's start here. Ephesians 4.26 says this. This is the New International Version. It says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. So there's, there, there's opportunity for the devil here. If I persist in, in long patterns of anger, I'm giving the devil a foothold in my life. That's clear from the text, right? But another thing we can see from the text is that maybe it's possible for there to be a righteous anger. In your anger, if your anger's present, just make sure there's no sin present with it. In your anger, do not sin. You see that? So maybe there is a righteous anger that's possible. So God has righteous anger. The Bible talks about his righteous anger a lot. I hope it's possible for us to have a righteous anger. Like if we see profound injustice in this world, the exploitation of the marginalized in whatever form, in in a thousand other, other examples we could think of, like there should be some anger, Right? Righteous anger is possible. But let's, let's take a step in another direction as we learn about anger. What else does the Bible say about this? The Bible says even if it's sometimes possible to be angry and not sin, we should still just have some caution. Still just have some caution. Look at what James 1.19 says. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and here we go. Slow to anger. Why? Well, man, thanks for telling us. For the anger of man, it does not produce the righteousness of God. Right? So maybe it's possible, according to Ephesians 4.26, to, to have anger that's, that's holy. But James is saying, be careful. Be careful. We should be slow to go there. We should be slow to go there. See it there? Slow to anger. Why? What does it say? 
Because anger so often does not produce the righteousness of God. I mean, is this not just experientially obvious in our lives? Is it not? That anger, maybe even it starts as righteous, but so quickly and so insidiously, it's like we don't even see it coming, it turns into unrighteousness. And this is what God desires. You can leave it up there, Kate. This is what God desires for his identity-secure people. If you know who you are in Christ, then you desire righteousness, right? Because that's what God wants for us. He wants us to produce his righteousness. And he's saying, if you're not slow to anger, there's going to be a disconnect there. It's likely. So be careful. Be careful. Be careful. There should be a slowness. It doesn't, it doesn't, notice it doesn't say you're never going to be angry, but he's just saying be careful. There's a slowness there. There's a slowness there. And so often your anger gets out of control and there's sin everywhere. You don't even see it coming, but it happens. So let there be slowness. Let there be slowness. It's like right around the corner, if you're not careful, there's this huge pothole that's going to completely wreck your car. If you don't slow down the car, your, your anger is going to want to take you 90 miles an hour through a school zone. You've got to slow down. You've got to slow down or someone's going to die. So when it comes to anger, slowness is our friend. Because in slowness, maybe there's a chance for righteousness to shine. So given all that, let's go back to Matthew 5 and what Jesus said in his sermon. His sermon to these first 12. He's trying to get them down to the matters of the heart. Let's look at the text again. I think what Jesus is talking about is just strictly unrighteous anger. Unrighteous anger. Evidenced by the words we use, right? Because in this text, it all points to our words. Anger so often is expressed, it can be expressed, right, with the silent treatment. Turning on the ice, super passive-aggressive. Anger can come out in silence, but so often it comes out through our words, right? What we say, and that's what Jesus is pointing to. You see it? Let's look at the text again. You've heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And here come the words. Whoever insults, insults are words. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, again, words, says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. What Jesus is saying is that if your anger produces the kind of words that speak in disparaging, insulting ways of people, things um, like, like just super superior. Like, I'm so superior over these idiots over here. Man, look at these idiots. How can they be such idiots? And he or she, they're just, they're just idiots. Can't believe how stupid he or she is. Just be, care- be careful. Be careful. You can come up with your own examples. I've had those things come out of my mouth. You have too. Or at least thought it. For some of us, this is just how we talk. There's no restraints 
on, on the, our capacity to just look down on those. There's no, there's no understanding of like, in light of what Christ has done for me, I need to be real cautious with how I talk about other image bearers. I mean, how common is this? I mean, my word, just in our culture of social media. There's just like this massive disconnect between social media, man, I'm angry and the whole world needs to know about it kind of culture, and and what Jesus is saying here about our hearts in reference to murder and anger. You feel that disconnect? Jesus is saying simply, that if we behave in this way without repentance, the same judgment for murderers will fall on those who murder with their mouths. You see that in the text? I hope you see that I'm not making this up. And this is heavy stuff. But just because it's hard and heavy doesn't mean we can't talk about it. We have to. This is what Jesus said. Just like we can't murder physical bodies with force, we can't murder physical bodies with words. This this sobers me up. This sobers me up. I hope you feel that too. Do you see what Jesus is getting at here though? What Jesus is trying to get at with his first disciples as he sits down and speaks to them Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and as he speaks to us today by the power of his spirit through his word, is that Christianity is not just about outward appearance. Like most of us check the box of number six. I'm good from my outward appearance, but have you heard how I talk? Have you heard how I talk behind closed doors? Have you heard how I talk online? Christianity is not just about outward appearances. It's about the disposition of the heart. And Jesus is saying that the way we speak shows what is going on in our hearts. You see that? So from the perspective of Jesus in Matthew 5, the question is this. Who here among us is not a murderer? Who here among us is not a murderer? Well, murderers need a heart change. There's a guy in the Bible who was a murderer. And we don't know much about him. But his name was Barabbas. And Barabbas was a murderer. Listen to what the Bible says. I'll just read it to you. You don't need to turn there. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. The he here is Pilate, who was in charge of Jesus' crucifixion. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them, for them being the Jewish people, Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for the Jewish people one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So what do we know about Barabbas? He's a rebel, he's a murderer, and he's an insurrectionist. Like revolting against the government, hating authority. 
And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, the murderer. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Murderers need a heart change. And the only way for God to change our hearts is through the good news of what Christ has done in space, time, and history 2,000 years ago through a perfect life lived, death on a cross, and an empty tomb. And one of my good friends from, from Nashville, his name is Michael Kelly, and he writes so well about Barabbas. Listen to what he says, and then we'll be done. He's barely mentioned in the Bible, and yet his story, maybe more than any other, serves to explain the gospel. So if you're, if, you're, if you're fuzzy on the gospel, listen up. If you're fuzzy on the gospel, listen up. If you need a heart change, listen up. He is Barabbas. Or rather, I am Barabbas. Here's what we know about this man. Number one, he was a rebel. One of his crimes was insurrection. He led a rebellion against the rulers of the land, the Romans. I too am a rebel. Despite the benevolent rule of my king, I have both willingly and by my very nature participated in heinous acts of rebellion against the rightful rule of the God of the universe. He was a murderer. Apparently during his rebellion against the ruling authorities, someone died, perhaps at his very hand. I too am a murderer. Not just of my fellow man, having wished them harm, but of Jesus Christ, whose life I have chanted for through my varied and sundry acts of despicable sin. I've chanted along with the crowd, crucify, crucify, for I saw him as a threat to my commitment to my own desires. I did not want him on the throne. I wanted to place myself on the throne. Number three, he, though guilty... Barabbas was released and an innocent was punished in his stead. Barabbas was shocked to find that somehow, some way, all charges against him had been dropped. Someone other than him was to die that day, though surely he deserved the punishment. I too have been released. The punishment that was rightfully due to me has been handed down to another. Someone, an innocent man, has been crucified in my place. I am Barabbas. You too are Barabbas. 
And now we stand with this man, suddenly freed from condemnation, blinking our prison-darkened eyes in the light of the sun of liberty, facing the penalty of death, we now surprisingly stand free, free to work, free to enjoy, free to live. Two questions. What will you do with this freedom? What will I do with this freedom? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that moves among us right now through the power of your word. So we ask you to do your work. Do your work of repentance and faith. Do your work of repentance and faith so that our hearts can be changed and we can live for righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.